And here we are, September the 30th, 2018, lecture discussion number 38 on the book of Joel. And for those who attended the September 23rd, uh, the number 37 lecture, and for those who have been absent and who continue to bask in the record high September temperatures, it's supposed to be 62 degrees today, and I think it's going to make it. I'm looking out there at the brilliant sun, and Alaskans, of course, are what? Yes, delirious. They're incoherently clinging to the tropical conditions, uh, uh, and everybody knows Church attendance in Alaska is affected by this. We are adversely affected by sunny days. I speak for cliffside sunny days, rainy days, cold days, snow, darkness, football, hunting season, fishing season, the state fair, daylight savings time change, both fall and spring, and book face tube, or whatever it is. All of that wipes us out. We're booming on cloudy, three sun Sundays that are cloudy in March. Hopefully they're cloudy. That's when we take off. Booming is a relative term. It's going to be, they think, tomorrow is October, right? Is it October? They think it could get 64 degrees tomorrow in Anchorage. I've been here as long as Jane. A long, long time. Okay, longer than Jane. Significantly longer. It's been a long time. I'm going to get letters now. Who's Jane? <laughs> it's Jane's birthday today. Is it today? No. Say it is. You get, get more chicken. <laughs> By the way, you folks on the Internet, we're expanding our advertising in the hopes of uh, some kind of windfall. So far, not so good. But if it is uh, 64 tomorrow, it's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. 65 years I have been in Anchorage, Alaska, and Whittier, Alaska. And, uh, I took some time out to go to Hawaii to pretend to go to school and other places where I uh, was a ne'er-do-well, to say the least. I've never seen anything like this in Alaska. I don't think I can remember days a September. It broke every single record for sunshine. All of that to say today's for the Internet. There's no doubt about that. So today is Internet Day. Anyway, probably a good idea to repeat a bit from last Sunday. There was a lot last Sunday, and I had to skim past a very important list. And I, need, I ran out of time, as I always do. Uh, and I need to get this list in. I think you'll see why when we get to it. You see, Jesus Christ is the I Am, the great I Am of Exodus 3. And after he casts out the demon from the blind mute, that is a significant thing that he did. And it was not unrecognized by anyone in Israel. Everyone knew that had any knowledge at all, whether it be uh, from the periphery or from the actual event itself, it spread through the country. Everyone knew that somebody had come and cast out a demon from a blind mute. And it, it's extraordinary. It was the number one thing they all would discuss after that because they knew the significance. It's a Davidic sign. It's, authentic, authentic, it's authenticating the Messiahship. Anyone who can do that is the Messiah. That's how they believe. They still believe that. That's Matthew 12, 22. Let me put it on. I got a request for all these scriptures. So I'll throw them over here real fast here. Matthew 12. Ah, 22. Luke 8:30. Mark 9:17. Mark 9:29. Matthew 11:4. Isaiah 35. Four through six, and Isaiah, and this isn't all of them. This just gets you started. Twenty-nine, eighteen through nineteen, or eighteen and nineteen. Those are the scriptures. It's again Internet Day, folks. Here you go. What's that? Oh no, it's not. We can't. We got to think about this. This is a chance to really come through 
Did you tell the visitor what was going to happen today? Okay, good. Did you apologize in advance? Okay. This. You did on the sunniest day of October's history. That's fantastic. So we, this is where we pause now, and everyone joins hands and sings a song around the new visitor. Okay. No, no. <laughs> we always have wanted to, though. We thought it would be hilarious. Someday I'm actually going to pull it off with a bright light and some kind of musical assembly as well. <laughs> anyway, where was I? I got to inject here on this 29 of Isaiah 18 through 19. We're talking about the Messiahship of Christ. He has authenticated who he is by casting out that blind mute or that demon from the blind mute. Matthew 29, 11, 4 and Isaiah 29, 19. They, they are, uh, they collaborate in the fact that they reveal the true identity of the person who has the ability, who has the will to cast out the demon from the blind mute. They tell you who he is. So they, if they had known that, they didn't know Matthew 11:4, but if they had gone to Isaiah 29:18 and 19 and said, "Who is the person that had, who is the Messiah exactly?" they would have known. It answers the question, the son of David question. Remember, when he cast that demon out, everyone is amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah? They knew this was a messianic sign. Is this really the Messiah? Well, Isaiah 29, 19 tells you who he is. He is the Holy One of Israel. Luke one thirty five calls him the holy thing. In other words, the language didn't exist to explain who Christ is. The baby, the infant. Not to be, con- actually, whenever you, you recognize, once you understand the holy one or the holy thing is God, is Christ, then you find out when he calls Judas the evil thing, That's a big deal. I have a holy thing in the New Testament and the Old Testament, and I have an evil thing identified. The holy one or the holy thing is Christ, identified again, Luke 135. Isaiah 35, 4 through 6, further uncloaks all of this. The one who heals the blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, raises the dead and saves the poor, that is not just the holy one, the holy thing, that is God himself, says so. So as soon as they recognized that Christ removed that demon from that blind mute had, and did all these other signs, then that is God. Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. The Holy One, the Messiah, the Holy Thing is God. God is the Son of David. God himself. Is this the son of David? That's the same thing. Had they known, had they done any research at all, they would know that question is, is this God? Because the son of David is God having added humanity. They couldn't have figured that out. That was a, that's the solution to Genesis 15, 6, right? Matthew 4. My point is, is that Christ couldn't have laid it out any more clearly who he is, what it means to do what he did. And the Pharisees, they're the students of the Bible, or supposed to be. They are the evil generation. He calls them the evil generation. They understood the significance of what he did. If you start reading their what they say, understanding that they had all of this upon them, they were answering the question whether or not this is the son of David, whether or not this is a messianic act. And And my point is, is that they did understand that, and you'll see that as you read it. What he did with this casting out of the blind mule, let me reemphasize that. No one missed it. We missed it because what? Yeah, we're dumb. We all know what we're doing. But they didn't miss it. They knew. They're looking for the Messiah. It's the fourth day. By that I mean they counted four days from Adam. This is the fourth day. Where's the Messiah? He's supposed to come four days from Adam. All of their... Uh, commentaries, all the rabbinical, the Gamil, the Mishnah, the uh, Talmud, all of them, they were shocked when the fourth day went by and there was no Messiah. So they're expecting the Messiah. And the Messiah did come, 
They just didn't know that he was God himself. But the Pharisees, the, the evil generation, saw all of what he did and rejected him to his face. That's very important to know. Here is God standing face to face with mankind. The Pharisees are the religious structure of Israel, and they reject God, Christ, on the basis to his face that he is evil. They said, they said to him that you are evil. I want you to notice this face part because God's face is all over the Bible, isn't it? And especially because we're into his entombment and his resurrection. The face of God is there in, in a profound way, as you know, as you've been here the last few weeks. But the nation of Israel, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel proclaimed God while he was standing in front of them face to face. They they proclaimed him to be the source, to be the origin of evil. And we would expect them to do that. Because that's completely in accord with the Genesis 3 lie of Satan or Ezekiel 28:16 or Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. That is where we learn what the lie of Satan is. And one aspect of the lie of Satan, I erased it from the board from last week. One aspect of it is that God is the source of evil. And they proclaimed that to Christ, to his face. They said, you are evil. And you are powerful evil. And no one should be surprised that they did that, right? Because you have seen and read Matthew 23, 13 through 36. What's that? That's where Christ just assails them. He said, those are the woes. Calls them the brood, a brood of vipers. He calls them the sons of Satan. He calls them evil. He would know evil. He's God. In the sense that he is pure good, has no evil. And so here are the Pharisees, serpents brood, Satan's sons. Of course they would accuse Christ of one of the aspects, probably the major aspect. We have to decide that later. That in existence are in contention. So we should expect, as I said, that they would use Satan's lie against him, assign that lie to him. Satan assigned it to God on the throne. The Pharisees would certainly assign it to God on earth. And Jesus condemns them. He calls them the evil, adulterous generation. And that is the, to which he references at Matthew 12:39. And at Matthew 12:39, Christ then makes a definitive, irreversible edict. Because you have done this, you have rejected me to my face. I am physically present. You're the leaders of the nation of Israel. You're the leaders of the religious order of Israel. You represent the nation of Israel. And I am before you. And you have, you have rejected me on the basis that I am the author of evil. That is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It can only be done by a nation. And it can only be done by the nation of Israel. It's not an individual sin. Understanding that helps you recognize what happens next. Because they did that, he now gives them this irreversible edict, a definitive irreversible edict. He says, the adulterous and evil generation, now who is it? It's the Pharisees and who else? Those who go and listen and believe the Pharisees. He said, you will not get another Davidic sign. You will not have another messianic sign. No more for you. Now, he goes on and does more Davidic and messianic signs. He does lots of signs, but not to the evil and adulterous generation that is represented by those who to his face called him the origin of evil. From this point forward, the adulterous and evil generation... Again, to repeat, those of Israel who follow the Pharisees, not to be blended, don't blend, don't confuse it with the Jewish believers. I've got two groups. The Jewish believers ultimately fled Israel to escape the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. when Titus attacked toward the pieces. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews is a letter from Paul. I've made this case my whole so-called career. That says to those Hebrews, those are believing Jews who are not in Jerusalem, and it is telling them, do not go back to Jerusalem. When you read the book of Hebrews with that context, it will make a whole lot more sense to you. 
If you understand that it is Paul, it even makes more sense. So to the adulterous and evil generation that rejected Christ, the premise of the Pharisees was that Christ is the origin of evil. It is these who would now only be given one thing from this point on. What is it? It's the sign of Jonah. So from here on, because of what you did here, all you get is the sign of Jonah. That's it. And that raises the most obvious of the obvious questions. What exactly is the sign of Jonah then? We've got to know. That's all they're going to get. So what is it? And it's explained a little bit, but not very much. So that's good, isn't it? We don't get all the information, so we have to do... Where would you go to find out what the sign of Jonah is? Where would be the first place you would go? I would recommend the book of Jonah. Yeah, it's just a concept that maybe escapes people. But, but Christ even says... He gives you information. He says that it's three days... And it's three nights. And remember, we're in this discussion. Why isn't it three nights and three days? That's Hebrew reckoning. But it's three days and three nights, so it's not Hebrew reckoning. Why not? Three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. That's what he says to sign of Jonah. So there's a bunch of things you have to know immediately. First off, Jonah is dead in the fish. He's not sitting in the fish with a little lantern writing some note to himself. I mean, he's not. He's in a fish. He's in there three days, three nights, and he's dead. The book of Jonah makes that clear. In the belly of a great fish. And then he is resurrected. Look at Jonah 2.2 2 and 2.6. He's in Sheol. He calls out from death. And then he is vomited out alive. Resurrected. I think he looked a little bit worn, probably. But the Assyrian Empire is transformed by him. I will tell you that the key to the sign of Jonah, though, is not, not just the three days, three nights, belly of the fish and resurrected. It's the crimson worm that eats the gourd that gives him shade. When you put all of it together, you find out what the sign of Jonah is. So also Christ would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's in the belly of the fish. Christ's in a cave. The cave and the belly have a relationship. That becomes really cool. How come? Feel free to participate, especially if you're the visitor. So far, the visitor has not laughed at my jokes, but he has smiled three or four of them, and I keep track. I'm working on him, but so far, not so good. i got another two hours to go, so. <laughs> you shouldn't have laughed. I might have had him there. Anyway, just like Jonah, three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, Christ will be three days, three nights in a cave. So I have this relationship between the belly of the fish and the cave. So we can conclude that the sign of Jonah is the resurrecting of a man after a specific period of days and nights. So we have days and nights and a resurrection from a fish-like situation, belly of a fish. We know that to be a cave with a stone in front of it. So how is the fish and the cave related? Excuse me. <coughs> and again, back to these days and nights. Days and nights um, is a sun-moon established process in Genesis 1, 16 through 19 on the fourth day, as you remember, I hope. It's contrasted from the dividing of the light from the darkness at Genesis 1, 2 through 5. Let me say that in an easier way to understand. The sun and the moon and that whole aspect of what they are put in the sky for on the fourth day is different from the primal light that hits the dark water-covered earth. 
that divides the day and the night. I have the dividing of day and night in two places in Genesis 1, but one is, the, of course, the beginning, the primable light that hits the earth. The other is the sun and the moon. And perhaps you remember from a while back the letters that we got from Shannon and Gabriel. And Shannon had begun from Texas to uh, deeply consider the signs of Jonah, or the sign of Jonah and its implications as to as to the entombment of Christ and the resting of the ark of Noah. He looked at when the ark of Noah came to a stop and he looked at the crucifixion week of Christ and he tried to put them together, which is a really incredible uh, endeavor. And Gabriel stared at, if you will, was investigating the sun and the moon and specifically the lunar cycles and the solar calendar. So both of these men understood instinctively that something of immense value is here, resides in the timing of the days and nights. And Christ gives you that focus, if you will. He makes that the point of the sign that he gives to the evil and adulterous generation. This is three days and three nights. Because the question would be, why not one day, one night? Why not five days, five nights? Why not seven days, seven nights? Why not three, you know... Ten days, twelve days, but it's three days, three nights. Why? What does that have to do with Genesis where it is all established in the beginning? And think about this for just a minute. Obviously, the primeval light that causes life. See, the primeval light is a life-causing force. So that tells you that that is Christ himself. He is the primeval light. He is the light that causes life. He says that in John 8, 12. That's me. So when you read Genesis 1-2, this light comes and strikes the earth. It's not the same as the light of the sun and moon. The light of the sun and the moon is a photon-based particle system. Primable life is not physical. So I have a spiritual light and a physical light. And the physical light represents the spiritual light. But when the primable light hits, I've said this quite a few times, Thank you. The, the wife laughed. Let the record show. <laughs> How come only my relatives are laughing? What caused that? Mm-hmm. Some kind of legal process to get rid of me. <laughs> I said this a lot. The clock, that's a clock. That sun and moon is a clock system. God has put a countdown clock at Genesis 1.16. To repeat all of that, how long will it be in motion? He sets the clock, winds it up, if you want to think of how he put, does it in this regard, and then he sets it in motion. So all of the systems that we see in the heaven uh, have this time element to them. That's why when I talk about time all the time, it's been important uh, to, for you to recognize that God has authority over it and is outside of time and is the only one that is. Nothing else is outside of time but him. And that what he's doing with the sun and the moon and the days and the nights is illustrating that time is inside him. As he says, as Christ says in Revelation, that time is in, I contain time inside of me. But that clock begins at Genesis 1.16, so how long is it going to go? It started in motion, how long does it go? But at Genesis 1, 2 through 5, there is no indication of motion when the primeval light hits. In fact, it's the opposite. The primeval light comes to darkness and lifelessness. There is no life. One of the characteristics of lifelessness is uh, at the macro level, as opposed to the micro level, there is no motion obvious. Now, at the quantum level, of course, there is motion. But at the, what we would call the Newtonic level, or the uh, Newton physics, there is motionlessness. So, notice the difference. And we've got to reconcile the difference. First, we have to conceive the differences, and then uh, reconcile them. With the sun and the moon, the clock is in motion. With the primeval light, there's no indication of motion to anyone but God. He would know there's motion. The angels would not know. Unless the water was moving, and I don't believe the water was moving from an angelic perspective. Anyway, 
Not today. We're not going to do that today. We're, today we're going to stick to the lists, especially the attenuated one from last week. And the intended purpose of the list that I'd left out last week, list number two, if you want to think of it that way, of lecture number 37, was to bring forward the relationship, all of the relationships between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Christ. They are intrinsically uh, stuck. You're not going to separate the resurrection of Lazarus from the resurrection of Christ, and that is a profound truth. This is what Christ wanted. He is God. He is choosing this. So ask yourself, how is it so and why is it so? And I submit that he did it in a way that makes it uncontestable. People argue with me. I know you say, how could they possibly argue with you? But they do, both of them, every so often. Um, But Christ has done this with Lazarus in a way that you cannot argue it. And so now, again, another obvious of the obvious question. Why is he doing it? If Christ is the sign of Jonah and Lazarus' resurrection is intrinsically melded to Christ's resurrection, then it follows that Lazarus must also be what? It's just basic transitive property. He's got to be the sign of Jonah. So how is Lazarus the sign of Jonah? Well, he's a resurrected man after a specific time of days and nights, isn't he? And then, as I said last week, it now follows if Lazarus is a sign of Jonah, how many signs of Jonah did Christ give to the adulterous and evil generation that follows after the Pharisees? And I said last week that there are three of them. If Christ and Lazarus are together and Lazarus is a sign of Jonah and Christ is a sign of Jonah, they would have to be. So who's the third sign of Jonah? You had a whole week to come up with your position. Has anyone even thought about it? Nod like you have to to encourage me. Thank you. Wow, I'm glad you all put time and effort into that. There is another sign of Jonah that Israel sees. Uh, It says here, note to self, read John 11. So let's do that. And 12. Not all of it, just little pieces, because we tie together Lazarus and Christ. Huh? Eleven forty-five. This is after the resurrection of Lazarus. Where last week we did uh, a lot of that, but now we have. Uh, So Christ says, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. What did they believe? They believed that this was a Davidic sign as well as the blind mute. And these are mourners that came to Mary. So she is covered by people who came to mourn with her. They see the resurrection of Lazarus and they believe in Jesus. They believe in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees. See your two groups? Some believe, some go to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council, that's the Sanhedrin, and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. Among them is a Davidic sign. We had a problem. This is the Messiah. Now, if they had read Isaiah 35 and 29 chapters, they would know that this is just the son of David. The son of David is God himself. But they didn't know that. Satan didn't know that. No one knew that. We learned it from post-resurrection. They said, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. That was actually a pretty uh, good conclusion. By everyone, who did they mean? Now, remember, they're Jews. What do Jews think of Gentiles? What do they think of Roman Gentiles? They don't want anybody saved but Jews at this time. That's one of the failures of Israel. It's one of the reasons, of course, probably the central reason of the Nebuchadnezzar uh, dispersion, where he captures the whole nation of Israel, removes it. Because they refused to take the truth of God to the Gentiles. They hated the Gentiles. So that when they say everyone will believe in him, they mean Jews. All the Jews will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Because they'll kill all the Jews that believe in him. Because the Messiah is supposed to set up a kingdom on earth. 
And the Romans are not going to allow that. They are the kingdom on earth as far as they knew. Had the Jews knew that this was God himself, how worried should they have been that the Romans could take him out? But they didn't know, and that's evidence they didn't know. Let me continue. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. That is absolutely true. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Actually, quite profound. One man should die so that none else will perish. But he didn't have that put together either. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also he would gather together and one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. That's the key part. Now let's go to John 12, 9 through 11. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was here, and they came not for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see Lazarus. You see, because Lazarus was raised from the dead, he had been four days and four nights in a tomb, and he stunk, and he comes out wrapped in grave clothes, and Christ loosed him, has him loose, and he is now walking around. What did he look like? I ask that all the time. How old was Lazarus? Did Christ, while he's at it, while he's resurrecting him, did he clip his fingernails and, you know, give him a haircut? How did he work it out? How old was Lazarus? How old was he when he died? And how old was he when he came out of the tomb? How much restoration did Christ do for Lazarus? Was he recognizable? They knew that was Lazarus because he's got Lazarus's grave clothes, Lazarus's face face cloth and he's in Lazarus's tomb. What did he look like? The guy that comes out has got Lazarus's a little bit. I can barely say Lazarus's. But he has his personality, he has his memories. He can prove he's Lazarus. But what did he look like? How much how good a job did Christ do? That's the question. People want to see him. So they come not to just says they came, knew that Christ was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus. What do we got here? We have a man who is resurrected from the dead. If I had a man who was resurrected from the dead, I would just guess that there'd be at least three or four more people here today. I know it's sunny. I know it's incredible. But I'm guessing at least three. Wouldn't we all want to know what it felt like to die? What happened at the instant the physical body died? What happened to the soul spirit? Because you are a two-component being. You are a physical being and a spiritual being combined together. Two different substances. What happened to the the spiritual substance? How did the physical substance get its energy to continue? Because it needs an energy source. Oh, look, a primeval light happens to be real close by. Really nice energy source. Life-giving force. What happened to the body? How did it all work? And then, of course, you're recombined by Christ. The whole body that is in complete decay, it is putrefied. The the putrefication process has been completely uh, arrested and reversed. And the spirit re-enters the body and out you come. How did that work? Wouldn't we want to know? The Jews wanted to know. Also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Duh. I wanted you to see that they plotted to kill Christ and they plotted to kill Lazarus because Lazarus and Christ formed this singular aspect with regard to the sign of Jonah. Now we'll go over here to John 12:17. Therefore, the people who were with him, with Christ, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. So they're running around saying, we were there. That's Lazarus. That's the guy that raised him. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign, the sign of Jonah and the Davidic sign prior. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. 
So what do we got here? Many Jews who had come to Mary, the professional wailing mourners, believed in him. These are people that see death all the time. They, they mourn for it. They're hired to weep. That's what they do. They're good at it. Why do they do such a good job? Because they believe that death is the extinguishing of personhood. It's not. But that's what they believe. The Sadducees, for example, did not believe anywhere in the Bible is there any reference to a life after death. And Christ, of course, corrects them with, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was. It's a statement of afterlife. But the Sadducees believed that, just like the evolutionary monists today, the atheistic community or philosophy that controls our academic structures, they believe that when you die, you are extinguished and you go into nothingness. And so you are nothingness waiting to be nothingness. That makes sense. I hope it does. If I'm going to be nothingness, then I am nothingness now, just waiting to find out that I am nothing. And these Jews who believed that, who did it as a job, stopped believing that and they started believing in Christ. That was a big deal. When you convince the professional mourners that death is not final, you have put them out of business. They are out of business. They have no jobs. They don't believe anything they're doing. Wait a minute. They could be politicians still. They still do that. But some of them went away to the Pharisees. And there again, there's two groups, the believing Jews and the adulterous, evil generation Jews. Pick a side. The Pharisees then fret over the many, many Messianic and Davidic signs. The Pharisees not only reject Christ then, but they wish for him to be dead, and they plot to kill God, which is insane, on display. They also plot to kill Lazarus, the resurrected man. More insanity, because if they were to kill Lazarus, what would Christ do? Resurrect him again. Now what do you got? We could do this all day. And he even says that, listen, I can resurrect myself, Christ says, anytime I want. I can lay my body down and lift it up again as often as I want to do it. And he can do it to you. He can do it to himself because he is the life and the resurrection. He is God himself. But I want you to see that Lazarus, the chief priests respond by attempting to kill Lazarus and plotting to kill Lazarus just as they attempt to kill Christ and plot to kill Christ. Christ cannot be killed. He's God. He must give his life up. And so I want, to, want you to see this commonality between Christ and Lazarus. And the adulterous and evil generation saw them as a singular threat. And that's important also. They put them together. This is one problem. Let's kill them both. Again, that is the point of the Lazarus and Christ commonality. The believing Jews saw Christ and Lazarus as dispositive, irrefutable proof of everlasting life. Physical death was reversed with Lazarus. That's a big deal. That affects everything in that community. Raising Lazarus was the sign, this sign, the sign of Jonah. Lazarus, the first of the three signs of Jonah. Who would be the second? Obviously, that's Christ. Who would be the third? That we have yet to reveal, but you, of course, are hard on the, on the trail. In order to solve this, we need a list. Yeah, gotta have a list. If you don't have a list, how are you gonna fix anything? You're not gonna, you can go to the grocery store with a list. Lists are fun. Everyone loves lists. By everyone, I mean me. Okay. This is mostly from John 11. Oops, I've got to erase this. You folks on the Internet, do you have that? Okay. i got to get rid of it. I did that for you because today is Internet Day. I'm in the dark up here. Is that unusual? Do I need light? Particle light. Know the difference. <laughs> He did not say, let there be particle light. He said, let there be primable light, the light of life. Okay, so here we go, mostly from John 11. Lazarus is dead. Laz dead. That's how we start in our list. Christ refers to Lazarus' death. He, he doesn't call it death. He calls it a temporary state of lack of mobility. Sleep. Again, only God only refers 
only puts death in sleep when he is referring to a believer. Does not say that when he's uh, discussing unbelieving death. Neither one's is cessation of existence. One is a temporary suspension of employment. Think of it that way, or service. Lazarus is temporarily suspended from service. And it happened in his case to be really temporary. He got four days off. Back to work. With people trying to kill him. How much fun did he have? You're going to kill me? Cool. We see that same behavior someplace else. Oh, you're plotting to kill me. Great idea. That's the third sign. So now you all know where it is. I got women around Mary and Martha. So I got Mary. I got her sister Martha. And I got women everywhere. What could possibly go wrong? Oh, I'll get a letter on that. And what are they doing, all these women, Mary and Martha, after Lazarus has died? They're weeping like crazy. I got weeping women everywhere. So weeping. What else are they doing? Why are they there? They're professional mourners. The women make the best mourners. They do the best job of weeping. That's why we put them in charge of weeping. But what else are they they there for? They've been there for a while. They had to help bury Lazarus, right? What do they do? They're making grave clothes. So we have all that. We have the linens and we have the fragrances. So I got women by the boatload weeping who came to do grave clothes. And Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. If you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. It's probably her favorite or famous statement of, of all. She actually says, Lord, if you had been here, um, my brother would not have died. And Christ says to her, your brother will rise again. So let me put that there. Your brother will rise again. And she says to him, I know he'll rise again. He'll rise again in the resurrection. And Christ says at that point, I'm the resurrection. I see the hands. I am the resurrection. I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection. I'm the resurrection. It's back to, they're together. Do you get it? Obviously, Martha did not get it. And then again, we have a whole lot of weeping going on right here. It's uh, lots of weeping. Weeping is abounding. Uh, he asks her, do you believe this? I am the resurrection. I'm God. I got this under control. Do you believe me? And she does not answer him. And that tells me that's an indicator, in my opinion, of unbelief in Martha. I have to hurry. And again, much women weeping and women in unbelief. And then Mary repeats Martha's question word for word. She says, uh, or her, her statement, word for word, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why in the world do both of these women do this? The same question. Did they talk to each other about it? And then we end up with this groaning after... Christ groans now over this statement. Oops. And Mary, I'm sorry, um, and Christ asks, where have you laid him? Now, this is omniscient God. He knows where he's laid. He knows all things. He's outside of time. Why does he ask the women, where, did they, where have you laid him? He has a reason. God asks a question. They say, Lord, come and see where we have laid him. And how does Christ respond to that? H-I-J-K, sorry, L. How does Christ respond to that? Jesus weeps. The man of sorrow weeps. Why does God weep over this? Over this, he's groaning, he's weeping. 
Answer, knowing why he's doing this is important. And then uh, we have this cave element. We have a stone in front of a cave, and we have this great stench. And Jesus prays aloud. Whenever God prays aloud, then he is obviously not doing it for his own purposes of understanding himself. My gosh, get a clue. He's praying aloud. He even says why. I'm praying aloud so that you will believe me for your sake. He's doing it for your sake, which takes you back to Genesis 3, doesn't it? Because Genesis 3 is where he says the curse is for your sake. So here we have a Genesis 3 reference. That you'll believe, which is all Genesis 3. Oops, go with O instead of N. Uh, Then his loud voice, he calls Lazarus out by name. M-N-O-P, I can do this. Um, He's bound hand and foot. Um, He has grave clothes on Lazarus or death clothes or a death garment. He has a grave, I'm sorry, a face cloth. He even identifies the face cloth. And he says, loose him and let him go. So that's our Lazarus list, effectively. Now, the Christ list, I hope you see these, the, uh, the similarities here. I hope you, do I have a cave and uh, do I have a stone in Christ's entombment? I absolutely do. I have these two, but I do not have this one. Why not? Because of Psalm 16.10, he cannot go into corruption. The body of Christ cannot have any decay in it at all. Very important. Does Christ have grave clothes? Yes, he does. Does he have a face cloth? Yes, he does. Is there anything that talks about where he's been laid? Where have you laid him? Anybody ask that? Do I have women making fragrances and wrapping linens or trying to? They even ask, who's going to move the stone? They're wandering around going, we've got a stone in front of this thing. What are we going to do about it? A tremendous amount of unbelief. Women gather with the burial spices and the linens and they weep over him. There's three days and three nights. In Christ's case, the face cloth is folded. In this case, the face cloth is still on Lazarus. In Christ's case, the grave clothes are laying there. In this case, they're still wrapped around Lazarus. So there's some significant differences, but there's also great similarities in the sense the pattern is the same. The women, as I said, they're making the the burial spices. They're convinced that he's going to smell. So the smell is there in the sense that the women have unbelief and they think it's going to happen. Who's going to roll, roll away the stone? We're not going to be able to get that stone rolled away. There's an earthquake. People come out of the graves. Tremendous amount of resurrection with Christ. They go into the city and they testify. That would be amazing, as I've said many times. What happens to the veil in the Holy of Holies? It's torn. What's the veil made out of? Look it up. Fine linen. What's the grave clothes made out of? Fine linen. With Christ, let's just read that really fast. I know I got to go fast. Um, Revelation one. Start at 16. This is John describing Christ. He had in his right hand seven stars out of the mouth and out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. If you read the accounts in Matthew and all the all the Gospels, you'll notice that the angel of God moved the stone 
And he looked like that description I just gave you. He's called the angel of God. He's not just moved the stone. He's sitting on the stone. And the guards, the Roman guards, what happened to them? They fell as dead. Every time Christ is around people revealing himself to be God, they fall down dead. And he has to resurrect them. Not a problem. The women uh, are panicked in both places. The women say, uh, Mary says to Christ, she she thinks he's the gardener. She's weeping. She turns away from him. He has to call her name, Mary, and she turns around back to him. And she says, I don't know where you took him. Will you tell me where you laid him? So I have that same element here. And you start to see all of them show up. loud voice is there in both places crucifixion and in raising Lazarus he says things aloud so that people will believe him he weeps for them here Lazarus had to be loosened and had to be let go Christ loosed himself So we begin to see some of the difference. And obviously there are other elements to do it comprehensively. I I got a dozen more holy, most most holy platinum model reversing dry erase boards to buy if I'm going to try to do it. It's exhaustive and it's a huge, exhausting mountain to climb. And hopefully you're beginning to see the cross-reference and process. That's what I put the list for you. What is the same? What is different? Um, it, it should be obvious that Christ, by his design, replicated some of the death and the atonement and resurrection of Lazarus in his own death, burial, and resurrection. It's what he did. And with that said, there's also differences. So you take, you pay attention to both as much as you can. Now let's take a few of the supposed uh, lower fruit. Some might say the easy ones. I've done some of the so-called easy ones. And you're allowed to say there are easy things here that you can easily understand as long as you know there are no easy things here that you can easily understand. Does that make sense? Because if you think it's easy, then you're always what? Wrong, and you left a whole bunch on the table, you got nothing. So, but you could say, I got, I got some of that, but as long as you know you didn't. You got to bring a backhoe, you got a lot of digging to go. Lazarus is dead four days, so let's take these. Christ is dead three days. The math means seven days. A creation week is seven days. We go back to the seven days of creation right there. Christ is telling you this is a math issue, four and three. This is why you give me the big money, why I go first in the buffet line. Four and three is seven. A day is a thousand years, Peter says. Learn one thing. A day is a thousand years. Is this 7,000 years? Is that why he did it? Likely that's why he did it. But that's not the only reason. Let's just take the 7,000 years. 7,000 years from what? What is he saying? Is there 7,000 years given to man? Is that what he's saying? Why did he divide it into four and three? Why is Lazarus the four and he's the three? Why isn't he the the four and Lazarus the three? If he's the four, then he would have had to have come after 3,000 years from Adam. If it is from Adam. Because you've got to figure that out. What's the start of the 7,000 years? Is Is it the fall of Adam? Is it the creation of Adam? Is it the sun and the moon? You pick. Feel free to pick. I don't want to interfere with your freedom. Why did Lazarus get assigned the 4,000 years and Christ take the 3,000? And we know that there's supposed to be 2,000 years of the bride of Christ and then a 1,000-year millennial rule of Israel for 3,000 years where he's the king over the earth in present. You can go and see his face. It's revealed. But what's this 4,000? Why did Christ, if he came 4,000 years from Adam, why did he uh, descend then and then ascend then? 
and they de descend again 6,000 years from now. Why is he doing it that way? I want you to note for today the Adam-Lazarus-Christ relationship. I brought it up before. All of them have grave clothes. Uh, all of them die. All of them are restored. One restores himself using the other two as symbols or as types of him. The first Adam and the last Adam, that makes sense, doesn't it? That's clear, I hope. It's expected. It's fulfilled prophecy. Romans 5, Christ would pattern himself out after Adam. But why Lazarus? Why is Lazarus included in the Adam-Lazarus Christ? He seems like a transitionary piece. And he's absolutely connected to Christ and connected to Adam. What's his, what's his role? What does he represent besides somebody's brother that Christ loved? Lazarus has a face cloth and Christ has a face cloth. What is the obvious question now? Is it the same face cloth? In other words, now you've got to ask a question. If it is the same face cloth, how did the face cloth of Lazarus get into the tomb of Christ? Did Christ take and reuse the face cloth of Lazarus when he resurrected him? He's got a face cloth there. It's Lazarus' face cloth. Did it fall to the ground? Well, yeah, they got, took it off his face, loose him and let him go. Where is it? On the ground. What do they do? Leave it there? Does Christ need a face cloth? He wants one. Does he take this one? He's connected to Lazarus. Intentionally. Did Christ take and reuse the face cloth of Lazarus? Because he folds the face cloth, as you know. Did he fold the face cloth of Lazarus when he resurrected him is the question. Did he fold the face cloth of Lazarus in a certain way in front of John the disciple, the apostle? Because when John saw the folded face cloth of Christ inside the tomb, what did he do? He knew immediately that Christ had resurrected himself. It says clearly he believed that this was a resurrection. How did he believe that? Had he ever seen a resurrection before? Had he ever seen a face cloth before? Did Christ pick it up and fold it in a unique way? And John knew what that way was. Is this why John saw that Christ was resurrected? Why didn't Peter know then? Did Christ hide it from Peter? If he did hide it from Peter, why did he hide it from Peter? Simon Peter means hearing. Simeon, hearing. The hearing of Israel. Why did he hide it from Peter? Why does John see the face cloth and Peter and know immediately and John didn't understand a thing? I'm sorry, I said that back. Why does John see the folded face cloth and know immediately and John does not and doesn't understand it at all? He's confused. God has a linen face cloth obscuring his face made of linen. He removes it from his face. He uncovers his face and he folds it. At the same time, he tears the linen veil. Not the same time, but in that, in that crucifixion week. Which, what does the linen veil do? What's the purpose of the linen veil? It hides God from who? From humanity, except for the high priest who has a rope around his foot in case he dies in there. What's the meaning of the rolling away of the stone in the cave? Why does God choose a cave and a stone? He doesn't have to do that. We could bury him, right? He wouldn't be cremated because that's pagan. I know some of you don't know that. I have claustrophobia. I got it from the railroad when I had to crawl through ductwork and fix air conditioning systems and fan motors. And believe it or not, they always picked me to do the crawling through the ductwork in the dome cars because why? I was the skinny one. That's right. And it wasn't even close. Let's go get the skinny dumb one and make him do this. What do you suppose is in the ductwork systems in a railroad car? She said rats. She's wrong because rats, I've seen rats. I went to Hawaii. They're the size of dachshunds. These are not rats. 
these are shrews and they're really not pleasant. So that freaked me out and I've been freaked out ever since. I do not do clothes confined places very well. So I don't want to be buried in a coffin. Just the thought of it makes me goofy. Okay, I'm goofy before I'm goofier. But Christ chose burial in a cave. I, I like that. Got room. Maybe a light system. Something to do. Better than a fish belly, I think. Even though I have a desk in both, and where I can. Never mind. Why does God choose a cave and a stone? He chooses burial. He wants burial. Caves are prominent in Genesis. Lot dwelt in a cave. First mention of a cave is Lot dwelling in the cave in the Bible. So this goes back to Lot in a cave. What did he do in the cave with his daughters? Can't get into it now. Think about Moab, the Moabites. Abraham buys a cave for Sarah to be buried in, and he buys the land in which it is, she's to be buried. He's got a big parcel of land, and it's in Canaan. It's property for burial. Why did Abraham do that? A great stone, Genesis 29.3, was rolled away from a well. At Genesis 28.20, Jacob makes a vow to God using the stone that he places upon his head. That's the place of the ladder of Jacob, Jacob's ladder, the ascending and descending. So we have ascending and descending here. I'm saying ascending uh, just to make it emphasized. It's ascending. And all of these things are going to have to be solved in order to figure out the meaning of the cave and the stone. We'll do something for fun. The cave is a hole in the earth. The stone is the obstacle. The stone has to, the obstacle of of the hole in the earth has to be removed. Just for today, note that Lazarus shares this with Christ. Both have a stone that has to be rolled away. But Christ rolls his own stone away and sits on it, loosens himself from his own grave clothes, his own death death covering. And that's a marked contrast to both Adam and Lazarus, both of who require Christ to remove their grave clothes, loose him and let him go. Adam's, he has, he removes Adam's fig leaves. Why are all these women weeping? I got weeping women everywhere. Is that what women do all the time? Just sit around weeping? Wall Street make money off of weeping women? How about churches? Oh, yeah, baby. Why are you weeping? He says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? John 20, 15. Doesn't call her by name. Does he know her name? God asking questions, always a treasure when God asks a question, figure out the treasure. Adam is the first gardener. Mary Magdalene thinks Christ is a gardener. She asks, why do you, why does she think the gardener stole the body of Christ? John 20, 15. Does he look like he's somebody who steals the body of Christ? What's she doing? Oh, the gardener did it. Usually the butler, but not this time. Gardener. She'd just seen two angels, think about this, in white, sitting in the tomb. The linen grave wrappings are between them. The two angels asked her, Woman, why are you, woman, why are you weeping? Will you stop it with the weeping? I added that last part. Again, the angel of the Lord is sitting on the stone, his countenance like lightning, guards laying down like they're dead, probably are dead. Revelation 1, 17 again. Matthew 28, 2 through 3. How could Mary think this is the gardener? Sure has a pretty good light system with him. Are you the gardener? Yeah, he is actually. He's the second gardener. John's entire focus of his book is to do what? Everything that John wrote is for what purpose? Everything in the book of John, the gospel of John, is to do one thing. Prove that Christ is God. Somehow, everything that we have done proves Christ is God. All of these details brought forth by John through the Holy Spirit are evidences of absolute deity of Christ. The gardener obviously ties Jesus to Adam. Mary Magdalene wants Christ's body. Why does she want Christ's body? What's she going to do with it? She doesn't recognize Christ until he says her name, Mary, and then she turns and looks at him. This is is the only time she knows that that's Christ standing there. Prior to that, you might be the gardener, even though you're pretty shiny. 
and you're sitting on the rock. You obviously roll it away. I got two angels inside. Gardener. Ties you to Adam. But Mary is in contrast to Thomas. My Lord and my God. Mary calls Jesus teacher and master. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus corrects her. Don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended. There's that ascending and descending. I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Notice he does never say, our Father. He's the one who ascends and descends. No one ascends but him. He's the only one who descends from heaven. Also a reference to the high priest who cannot be touched until he fulfills his cleansing duties. Which is why Thomas is allowed to touch him and Mary is not. Do not disregard the positioning of Mary and Thomas. They are side by side in the Bible because they're contrasted there and compared. John put them side by side because he knew that. And then Christ breathes the Holy Spirit onto the apostles. Think about that for a second. How big is the Holy Spirit? How much does he weigh? Christ breathes him. Who can breathe the Holy Spirit? Only God can do that. It's a clear indication of the proof of Christ. Next week, we're going to try to do the difficult questions. We just did the easy ones. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus groans over that. He's deeply troubled. Both women ask him that, or say that to him. What's implied by that? What are they saying? Why did they say it? They always ask him, where is Christ? Whoa, where is he? Where is Christ? He's omniscient, he's omnipresent. Where is he? If you have been here, can he stop but being? He has to be here. Here requires him being here. All reality is inside of him. Anyway, next week, we'll take on the tougher stuff. Today, straightforward, easy as cake, piece of pie. Next week, it's really tough.